Okay, join me if you would in Acts 16. Acts 16, 16 through 40 today. Let's pray. Father, we come to this Lord's Day, perhaps many of us feeling weak or frazzled or depleted. Uh, nourishment is what we need. There is but one food which will satisfy us. You will not withhold from us the bread of life, the Lord Jesus Christ, nor will you withhold the Holy Spirit from us if we ask. And so we ask, fill us with the power of the Holy Spirit that we may lay hold of Christ through your word this morning so that we may find strength and courage and wisdom and life for the days ahead. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. We stand for the reading of the word. Acts 16, 16 through 40. This is God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out of her that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all, to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. But when it was day, the magistrates sent the police, saying, Let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, The magistrates have sent to let you go. 
Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens, and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No, let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrate, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So that so they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. Amen. This is God's word. Uh, last week in Sunday school, Michael was away, so I was teaching Sunday school, and I. Uh, reminded our group then about some of the overarching themes that I see running through the book of Acts. And I think it's good to maybe revisit those here as well. Um, I, I kind of take Luke and Acts as a whole, and I go all the way back to Luke chapter 1, verse 3, where Paul, uh, Luke tells the purpose of his writing. He says, It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. I just love that when a a book just tells us the purpose of the book. That you may have certainty. We've read in the story that uh, the, the way to salvation is to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. The opposite of certainty is doubt. There's a, there's a companionship between certainty and belief, certainty and faith. Luke wants us to have certainty. Luke carries on in the book of Acts, in the first chapter, he says, In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. So we, here we have the purpose of, of, of Luke in writing is certainty and to show us that Jesus not only began to work and teach, but that Jesus continues to work and teach powerfully through his people, through his spirit, through his word. And I I see those themes running through the book of Acts. They are glorious truths. Um, I I had an old pastor, Mike Wachowski, not not Wachowski from Monsters, Inc. Wachowski is still a friend. Uh, And one day he's preaching through John sequentially, and he said kind of one day, I was feeling like I... I can't preach the same exact message every week because John is like that. It's the same themes and so is Acts. And, and at the time I was kind of like, well, you just, just tell us what the text says and don't worry about whether you're being repetitious. But now in this, this side of the pulpit, I can sympathize a bit more with his sim- sentiment. And, and it is hard. This is the, I was surprised to realize this, the 45th sermon that we've done in Acts so far. And we've seen these truths on display throughout Acts. And in God's providence, he has us here in chapter 16 this morning. And rather than succumbing to the preacher's temptation to, to grow weary of the same themes or, or to, to uh, drift away into novelty, uh, I say we revel in the same themes yet again as God's word presents them to us. After all, what could be more relevant to our daily lives as we struggle against various doubts and trials uh, that we grow in confidence, that we grow in faith, that we grow in belief of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, 
As Paul said, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord to write the same things to you again is no trouble to me. And it is a safeguard to you. So let's turn again to the text of Acts and see the author and founder of our faith, Jesus Christ, vanquishing the foe and establishing his church and advancing the gospel. And I pray that we will come away today with confidence, which stands on the sure foundation uh, amid the shifting sands of the world. Uh, when the rains come and the floods rise, that there is but one rock, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians, there is no foundation other than that which has been laid, which is Jesus Christ. So first here we see in these series of stories, familiar stories, Jesus triumphing over demonic forces. Jesus' authority is shown over demonic forces. And I think in our time and place it may feel as though Demonic activity is something of a, of, for, from a bygone era that we don't deal with anymore. And yet, we're told in Ephesians 6, where we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And so, whether we realize it or not, or whatever form it may take in our own time and place, we do wrestle against the spiritual forces of evil. So as they're going along, Paul and Luke and Timothy and Silas are going to the place of prayer, which we learned last week. Um, you need ten men to have a synagogue, and it appears that there weren't, there was no synagogue, which is the place where Paul would normally visit first. So they went down to the river where there was a place of prayer, and there were women who would meet there. And so as they were on their way, a slave girl appears who has a spirit of divination. And her owners, she's a slave, and her owners uh, gain much fortune, it says, by, by her fortune telling, much uh, financial reward. Now, this word spirit of divination is actually, that word divination is, is essentially python. This is really a regional uh, deity, and Daryl Bach describes it this way. He says it's a Pythonian spirit, a spirit of soothsaying divinity. He's a serpent. This python is a serpent or dragon in, in the mythology of Delphi, and he was slain by Apollo. And it says that the priestesses at Delphi were called uh, Pythei. Um, and were said to be directed by the spirit of Python. And it says that, that the spirit was said to direct women by overpowering them and allowing them to force, foretell the future. So this is the specific regional deity, this Pythonian spirit that the people would have believed this, this girl would have had. Now, Paul warns us in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 of idolatry, and he, and he says there, I imply that what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. So we should be aware of finding demons under every rock, uh, but we should also be tuned into the reality that there are real demonic forces behind the idolatries of this world, behind paganism. It says, this girl was following them for days, crying out, these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. 
And we've seen this before in Jesus' ministry, that, that the demons would cry out, like in Matthew 8, uh, 29, they cry out, What do you have to do with us, O Son of God, that you come here to torment us before the time? So why, why this demon and this girl cries out uh, this truth, I don't know. If, if, she was, if, if the demon was just compelled by the presence of the power of the Holy Spirit to, to say this, or, or out of fear, or if perhaps this was some sort of just attempt at mockery or uh, distraction or disruption, I don't know. But she was following them day after day, crying this out, which you could see would rattle my nerves. Um, I, I'm grateful no one is standing here saying, Zach is proclaiming to you the way of salvation over and over again as I pr- try to preach. But Paul here, he is almost humorous. He casts out the demon basically out of agitation. It says he was greatly annoyed. And he says, I command you in the name of Jesus to come out of her. This is a very public display, and I suspect maybe part of the reason it took Paul some time is he probably had a sense of the repercussions of this action. And he maybe would have preferred to carry on with the business of evangelizing Philippi than getting embroiled in controversy. But it is a public display of the authority of Jesus Christ over a regional deity that he casts out this Pythonian spirit in the name of Jesus I'm reminded here of God's systematic dismantling of the gods of Egypt as piece by piece through plague after plague, God dismantles the deity of Egypt. He does the same thing here. He dismantles a demonic force, really, but but a regional deity in these people's mind, this Pythonian spirit. Jesus is more powerful. My mom came and watched the kids for us a while back and Actually, they went to her house. It was wonderful. We got to actually go see a movie as a couple. And we were going to watch something else, but the timing didn't work out. So we ended up going and watching Doctor Strange. I don't necessarily recommend this movie. It was interesting. Uh, it's odd. There, in this movie, there, there are lots of demons and, and dark magic and, and sort of pagan spirituality. I think many people in a secular culture make light of such things, maybe supposing they don't exist. Although our culture is less and less secular and more and more pagan and and do believe and participate with demonic forces. This demonic spiritual imagery is interesting to observe but I was was telling Kelly this after the movie, uh, the the devil is devious because while we are distracted on the film screen with, with scary demonic monsters, he has a more subtle spiritual attack going on. It's very interesting. Just, just um, seen and mentioned a few brief scenes in the, in the movie. Um, one of the main character's parents are two women trying to just normalize this activity. Right? There's all this spiritual warfare going on in the film And here's, I think, the real spiritual warfare, subtle, snuck in underneath. We have to pay attention. What are the demonic forces behind the idolatry in our world? But in in the name of confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ, we need to be careful that we're not succumb, we we don't succumb to doubt. 
when we survey the society in which we live, that the ruler over this present darkness is indeed powerful. But as Martin Luther said, we tremble not for him because Christ with one little word will fell him. So so the first point here is that Christ displays his authority over demonic forces. Next, we see Christ triumphing over the enemy in the face of the seemingly impossible. The seemingly impossible. I think often we find ourselves in a, in a position where the outlook is bleak and there's just it feels like there's no way we're getting out of this one. It's an impossible situation. I don't see how Jesus could bring redemption out of this. And this is a theme in Acts, once again, over and over. Christ has authority over the seemingly impossible situation. When this demon is cast from the girl, her owners are obviously furious. They, they, he's ruined their, their cash cow. Um, and Paul and Silas are dragged before the magistrate in the city square. Oddly, we don't know where Timothy and Luke are, uh, but they don't get dragged before the city square. And this, this city... Squares is the marketplace, which in Philippi would have been a large uh, forum, a covered forum. And this is where the place of business was in the city. This is where trials would have happened. So they bring Paul and Silas before the magistrate. And really, it's just a mob mentality that forms. And Paul and Silas are stripped. They're beaten with rods and they're cast into prison. And we don't know. we, We learn later that they bring up their Roman citizenship. We don't know why they don't bring it up now. Maybe it just happened too fast. We don't know. But notice here how Luke puts an emphasis on the impossibility of the situation. In verse 23, And when they inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison. I think this is funny. Ordering the jailer to keep them safely. It's his job. <laughs> they put special emphasis on keep these men Safely, So he puts them in, it says, the inner prison or the, the inner part of the prison where it's the most secure. And he says he fastened their feet in the stocks, which likely would have been a, a wooden apparatus where they sit on the floor and put their feet through uh, this these stocks. So they are secure in the innermost part of the prison. And there's just no way they're going to escape. But of course, when you are an ambassador for a Lord and King who also happens to be the creator and sustainer of the universe, uh, nothing is impossible. So verse 25, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were open and everyone's bonds were unfastened. So the impossible doesn't seem so impossible when Jesus can cause a supernatural earthquake. And it's not likely that just your average earthquake would open prison doors and open stocks without also collapsing the the structure in on. Jonathan, you probably tell us better whether the structure would have survived. So that's why I call it a supernatural earthquake. It had purpose and intention behind it. I've tried to be careful here to say that Jesus has authority over the seemingly impossible. Not he always overcomes the impossible, at least from our perspective. 
Sometimes it's not his purpose to remove us from what seems like a bleak situation. After all, he did allow Paul and Silas to be beaten with rods and thrown into prison. Remember when God released Peter from prison by the power of an angel earlier on in Acts, and in, in, in the same breath almost, in the same story as the story of James being beheaded. Well, Jesus wins some, he loses some, right? No. Jesus wins some and he wins some. Remember when Paul pled to have his thorn in the flesh removed, what was the response? My grace is sufficient for you. So the point here is not Jesus will always get us out of our problems. Um, you know, just sing hymns and pray and put on a smile. And, and God will send an earthquake to, to relieve you of all your problems, said Joel Osteen, right? No. The point is Jesus has authority over the situation and he has purpose in it. And Christ is not done with Paul and Silas. He has more for them to do. Therefore, they will not continue to sit in prison or be martyred, at least not yet. Uh, both probably were martyred under uh, Nero later in the 60s, but for now, God has a purpose for them. It's not likely we'll experience any kind of uh, deliverance as dramatic as an earthquake coming to undo our seemingly impossible situations, but we can have confidence, we can believe in the Lord Jesus when our outlook is bleak. If he has authority over tectonic plates and fault lines it's it, it, is it possible he has command over whatever situation we're dealing with finally here we see jesus triumphing over really vain attempts to squash the gospel that's a technical word squash it's gonna, they're trying to squash the gospel and he, he triumphs over these attempts And we know that our battle is not against flesh and blood, but it, it feels like it is sometimes, doesn't it? Those people, they're the problem. You know, we, we can feel the liberal darkness oozing down from Aspen. <laughs> but we see abominations, we see the rejection of godly virtue all around us. We see our corrupt authorities in the government, or so it would seem. And it feels like our battle is against flesh and blood. We have to return to where we were earlier. There, there are demonic roots behind the idolatrous affections of men. And the solution is not to attack the person or persons propagating these evils. The solution is the gospel. For only the gospel, together with the power of the Holy Spirit, is actually able to transfer a person from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of the beloved son. Jesus is a threat to the way of life of an idolater. The objections raised surrounding Jesus that would seek to squash the gospel often masquerade as virtue, right? They don't just say, well, we hate Jesus and we like our idolatry and we want you to go away, so we're going to kill you, right? It masquerades as virtue. So in verse 20, we see we have these men who are taking advantage of a young girl. 
through the wicked, commonly accepted practice of the time of slavery, they're exploiting her demonic oppression for their own personal gain. But what do they cry out before the magistrate? These men are Jews. They're disrupting our city. They're advocating customs that are not lawful for us. That sounds more virtuous. These men aren't good for our society. We'll see this same thing play out again in Acts 19 when the gospel disrupts the cash flow of those who sell statues of Artemis. Um, We'll also see it again and again throughout church history. We see it play out now. And what else should we expect as that's what happened to Jesus? So even as Jesus was beaten and flogged and stripped, hung exposed on a cross, put to public shame, here his servants are publicly shamed, stripped, beaten, thrown into prison. And this is, this is beyond punishment. This is open public shame. We don't know to what degree of undress they were, but it was an embarrassing process to be stripped and beaten. And it's this public shame is a way of saying, these are bad men. We reject them. We reject their message. Don't listen to them. Don't follow them. I just love the irony in this story. And there's two ironic things that happen that, that turn the attempt, this attempt to shame the gospel into really resounding victories for the gospel. First ironic thing is that the man tasked with the secure imprisonment of Paul and Silas, no doubt a bit of a rough character, is converted. Upon discovering what he believes to be this mass escape from the prison, he's about to fall on his own sword, which I read various sources that said this is actually uh, seen in their culture as a noble act, almost an act of admission, saying this is my fault. Um, But Paul cries out to him, calls him to not harm himself, says no one's left. This man rattles, he comes and he he falls on his face in front of them, trembling, and he asks this amazing question, what must I do to be saved? How did this, this rough Philippian jailer know to ask that question? It's a great question, a question a lot of people don't ask today. We just assume we're, we're, we're all good. How can I be saved? What must I do to be saved? We don't know quite where his his source comes from to know to ask that question, but he knew who these men were. He knew why they were in prison, roughly, that maybe he had heard of their prior preaching. Maybe he heard the announcement of the demon. Isn't that a funny connection? What must I do to be saved? As the demon cried out, these men are men of God proclaiming to you the way of salvation. Perhaps it was the singing of hymns, the content of their, their hymns and prayers that he heard, and the testimony of the fact that these men were singing in the midst of such great adversity. And then perhaps it's this earthquake. Surely whoever this, this God of these men is, he's displeased about their being beaten with rods and thrown into prison. How can I get on his good side? What can I do to be saved? Whatever it was, he seems that he has been laid bare before the God of Paul and Silas. He's aware of his own nakedness and his own shame. He's aware that he, the jailer, stands condemned before the living God. So he asks, what must I do to be saved? 
The answer is quite simple, really. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and all your household. Striking here, isn't it interesting that the jailer finds himself in his own impossible situation? He's seeking a way of escape. We should remind ourselves of this question often. What must I do to be saved? And we should also remember often the simplicity of the answer. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. We get ourselves all up in knots about all our problems. But here we can be grounded by these basic principles of Luke and Acts, having confidence in the Lord Jesus. You know, in, in place of all our best self-help, in, in place of vain attempts to escape the trials of this life, there's really only one great concern we should have. Is, am I right with the living God? And there's only one means of obtaining that standing. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the jailer believed that night. His household likewise heard the gospel that night and believed. Despite the best efforts of the devil to squash the gospel through the mob, through the magistrate, through the public shame and humiliation, the man tasked with the confinement of the gospel believed it. He and his whole house. And they were transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of the beloved son. They were brought into the family of God, receiving the sign and seal of baptism. And the same jailer, instead of jailing them, feeds them and tends their wounds. This is just one of many of what I've been calling lordship ironies. Lordship ironies in Acts. Just He's always switching, always changing the tables. Jesus here displays his authority over the devil's attempt to squash the gospel, ironically, by saving the jailer. The second sort of lordship irony we see is that the magistrates who publicly shamed the gospel are forced to go and beg forgiveness and make public apology. Verse 36 the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, The magistrate have, magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens, and have thrown us into prison. Do, and do they now throw us out secretly? No, let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So a Roman citizen could not just be beat without a trial. That's why they were afraid is because that's not allowed. And so really the magistrates could get themselves into a great deal of trouble for just beating a couple of men who were Roman citizens. Now, what, what is Paul doing here? Is he just kind of flexing his, his uh, Roman civic rights? We see often Paul 
He's willing to waive his rights, even as a, a citizen or as as a minister of the gospel or whatever it may be. He's often willing to waive his rights for the sake of the gospel. And here he really pushes back and uses them. I think, as I said last week, Paul's mission statement seems to be all for the sake of the gospel. So whatever he has available to him to leverage for the sake of the gospel, he takes advantage of it. How does Paul's objection here serve the gospel? Well, by openly shaming the preachers of Christ, the magistrates attempted to, to publicly squash or marginalize the gospel of Christ. Perhaps we might even say they attempted to exert their own authority over Christ. As Paul casts out this demon in the name of Christ and then they beat him for it as though they say this is a bad thing and we we have more authority than your Christ. He should not have done that. Now here Paul by his request, uh, the magistrates have to personally come down to the prison which was likely adjacent to the city square and personally escort them out of the prison and make apology to them. So now, as a result of Paul's leveraging his civic right, the gospel has gained publicity. It has regained some measure of public respect. And this small band of new converts that that is forming is no longer associated with Paul and Silas who are beaten and, and imprisoned, but with Paul and Silas who have been publicly apologized to for the magistrate from the magistrate. So Paul is very wise. He's taking advantage of an opportunity to, to vindicate the gospel in Philippi and to guard this fledgling church to a degree. Um, and as they leave the city, they're asked to leave the city and they comply. They stop. They bid farewell to Lydia and to, it says, to the brothers. Um, so apparently, you know, they were in the city for some time. Um, there were more than just the converts were told about here. So there's a band, a church being created here. And that really is the point of the story, that Jesus Christ is advancing his church through the gospel. He's establishing the church in Philippi. Despite demonic engagement, despite beatings, public humiliation, imprisonment, Paul and Silas walk out of Philippi with the church in Philippi planted. I have this image in my mind of, of you know, the, the movies where the guy's walking away from the firebomb all beat up, but he's walking away. Like, they walk out of there having accomplished their mission. The church in Philippi is planted. So these events recorded for us are just yet further resounding proof that Jesus Christ is King. Theophilus surely could not have helped but grow in his confidence as he read these stories. And indeed, what possible reason could we have to doubt the authority of Jesus after seeing these accounts? Was it not a confidence in the simple truth? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That enabled Paul and Silas to sing hymns and pray in prison, their feet in the stocks, scabs forming on their backs. It was a simple confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
The same Jesus who triumphed over the demonic schemes of the devils in, in these stories is the same Jesus who rules on his throne today. So believe in the Lord Jesus and rejoice in his salvation. Amen.